Our scripture reading tonight is Psalm 73. So let's read together the lyrics that are found in Psalm 73. The text for this sermon is going to be verse 24, which says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Let's read the whole song at this time, though. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What an astonishing psalm, a very autobiographical song. These are striking lyrics where the psalmist talks about this massive internal struggle he had. The problem was that for a little while he was acting like he was a practical atheist. He saw around him and he's looking not with faith but by sight and he's seen all the wicked people 
and they are prospering. They're doing great. They're like Russian oligarchs. They're billionaires. They have their yachts. They have their trophy wives. They seem to be healthy. They seem to think they will live forever. And when Asaph sees how the wicked are doing so well, he gets all discouraged, and he says, well, it's been a total waste. Here I've been trying to serve the Lord, and what do I get for it? At a crucial point in verse 13, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, look, I have been trying to serve the Lord. I've been trying to be godly. And look what I have to show for it. Suffering, sickness, trials, hard times. So it's as if believers, hey, our situations that we're simply left to suffer. And the psalmist is envious of the proud. He sees what they have, and he wishes that he had it. Until he goes to church. And then suddenly we find a transformation going on in Asaph's heart and life. Suddenly he is telling us that actually he doesn't envy what the wicked have. He doesn't envy their mansions or their yachts or their health. No, what he desires above all else is the great God of the covenant, our God. He is the psalmist's greatest desire, his greatest delight. And in fact, heaven wouldn't even be heaven if God wasn't there, he says. So what happens is that he goes to church and he perceives two things. One thing he perceives is the terrible judgment that will fall on the wicked. Right now, Vladimir Putin seems to be prospering. He continues to carry out the war in Ukraine. Around the world, many wicked people seem to be doing well. But the psalmist sees what their end will be when he goes to church. And then secondly, he also realizes what his end will be. Gloriously different. And he celebrates how God will, during his whole life, will guide him according to his counsel. And then afterwards, will bring him into the splendor and glory of paradise. And that's why this psalm can begin on such a high note. After Asaph went through all this, he composed the lyrics. And so he could start the song with words he hadn't been thinking about earlier on. He says, truly God is good to Israel. That's how he, 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 he comes to see that, to those who are pure in heart. And he ends by saying, for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. And he talks about how he wants to talk about God's works. Tonight, we want to look at God guiding us by his counsel. That's the great good news of what God is actually doing in our lives. God is guiding you by his counsel. And secondly, we will look at the necessity of him doing that. And then finally, God's goal in doing that. What is God's goal in guiding your life in every little detail by his counsel? Well, that goal is the glorious goal of going to be with God. 
The psalmist sings. Remember, this is a song. These are the lyrics of a song. In Psalm 73, verse 24, he is singing this, and he wants other people to sing it. You guide me with your counsel. That is a triumphant statement. And Asaph comes to the point where he can sing this with all of his heart. And that's something that tonight we have to also begin to sing from our hearts. God, you guide me with your counsel. Now, he hadn't been singing these songs prior to that. This, song, this psalm is very biographical, and he talks about how he had been so jealous of wicked people and their lives and the money they had and their health and how everything seemed to be going great for them. You know, the book of Psalms suits our needs. For example, when you're scared, you can sing, What time I am afraid, I put my trust in thee. If you're feeling just depressed and despairing, you can sing, O God, preserve me, for in thee alone my trust has stood. And if you're wondering, well, is God really good to me? Well, then this is the song for you to sing. This song is a personal confession of Asaph about the goodness of God, his sovereignty, and his guidance. And this is not only a song that we confess to be teaching truth, but this is a song that we take to heart. Notice how the psalmist sings in our text, you guide me, first person, personal pronoun with your counsel, and after you will receive me to glory. Notice how we need to make this personal tonight too and say, God, you guide me by your counsel, and afterward you will bring me to glory. The psalmist sings, you guide me with your counsel. He says, you, the second person singular. Who is he talking about here? Who is the one who guides him? It is the eternal God. It is Elohim. In the song, he begins by saying, truly Elohim is good to Israel. And the connotation of that name is that God is the powerful God, the almighty God. He is omnipotent. That's why this word is used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. I love how in verse 26, when the psalmist is talking about getting strength from the Lord, he uses this name Elohim. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God... The name Elohim has the connotations of might and power. He says, but God Elohim is the strength of my heart. So the one who leads you is the almighty creator. He is omnipotent. That's why he is able to be supreme over every little detail of your life. That's why he's able to guide every little thing, whether it is your health or whether it is, whether a hair is lost from your head. By the way, that name Elohim is in the plural, which has astounded commentators. Very interesting that after the life of Jesus, the unbelieving Jews tried to very strongly claim that their Judaism was monopersonal. That is, the one God they claimed to believe in, they said, only has, is only one person. 
But guess what? In the Old Testament, we find all these hints of plurality within the divine essence. We find already in Genesis 1, after all, in the very opening verses of the Bible, that the Spirit of God is brooding over the waters. And then we meet the angel of Jehovah, distinct from Jehovah, appearing to Moses at the burning bush. And then on top of that, in this psalm, we have a reference to Adonai, the Lord, in verse 28, where the psalmist sings, I have made the Lord God, that is Adonai, my refuge. And the word Adonai is also in the plural, hinting at a plurality within the Godhead. So who is, this, who is this one who leads and guides? It is the one true and glorious God, the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are guiding us and leading us. So we sing, you guide me. What does it mean that we are guided? Well, today one of my children went and guided our Lamantra goats out into a new pasture. And that means that she went in front of the goats and showed them a new place to go. She led them to some pastures where they could eat this lush vegetation. The picture in the Bible, of course, is us being like sheep, and we are led by our great shepherd. He leads us to living water that is refreshing, good, healthy water that's flowing, not stagnant water. He also leads us to green pastures. He directs us. He guides us. And that God does this is nothing new. What did God do during the wilderness wanderings? He constantly guided his people. He led them. He showed them where to go. At first, he led them in such a way as we have seen recently that he led them into a dead-ended sea by the Red Sea. God did that to test him, just like today our Heavenly Father guides us and leads us, and sometimes he leads us into situations where he will give us hard tests to refine our faith. So God guided his people, and then he led them through that pillar of fire and that cloudy pillar by day. God showed them where to go when that cloudy pillar would or fire would rise up, then it meant, okay, God was going to lead them on the journey. So we need a guide. The picture here, I think, is of us as pilgrims. We are pilgrims who not, have not arrived at our heavenly home. We are on the way to the celestial city, and there's this narrow, hard path that we need to follow on. Jesus says that path is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And you and I are each pilgrims, with our family, we're walking hands in hands as pilgrims, and we're heading towards that heavenly city. But the word of God says here that God is our guide. He guides us. He shows us where to go. In literature, we find all kinds of stories about people guiding others. For example, in J.R.R. Tolkien's about the hobbits. These laughable, foolish little hobbits need to have a guide. They need to have a leader, which sometimes is Gandalf. At other times, other guides. But we are pilgrims. And so God guides us. Sometimes he guards us in very, very difficult ways so that we experience the loss of loved ones. Sometimes he leads us down the ravines of, of ill health. 
And we become sick in his providence. And then there are dangers that he leads us around. He warns us about. The Bible talks about how the devil himself is like a roaring lion who is ready to pounce on us. All these devilish wolves are trying to go after us and God leads us and he protects us so that we can avoid dangerous orcs, as it were. God shows us the best path. He leads us. We find that same picture in other psalms. For example, in Psalm 27, verse 11, the psalmist asked God to lead him there. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. And also in Psalm 5, there the psalmist says, God, lead me. He asks God, he prays for God to do that. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. But here instead, what the psalmist says is, you guide me with your counsel. Now, in our versions, we have basically a translation of the imperfect. The Hebrew verb here is one that can have the imperfect. It's the imperfect tense, and it can mean an ongoing activity. So then the idea is that the psalmist is saying, God, you are guiding me, and this is something that's going to continue as long as I'm in this world. Or if you have a new King James Bible in your hands, you'll notice that it says you will guide me because sometimes this imperfect Hebrew tense can have the idea of something that will be done in the future. And that's why the New King James says, you will guide me with your counsel. And therefore, then the psalmist is optimistically looking towards the future and the fact that God will guide him on a safe path. And so God is guiding us with what? Now, when we are riding in the car with a loved one and we're driving to some strange destination, back in the old days, you know, we were older. We remember 20 years ago when we traveled, we had to have these maps. And we had all these maps and we had to look through them and try to give directions to the person who was driving. Now we have GPSs which can guide us and show us where to go. What's going on here? How are we guided? The psalmist says, you guide me with your counsel. What is God's counsel? Well, God's counsel is his eternal plan. His eternal plan and what he has decided for all of our life long. It is utterly comprehensive. God planned before you were born the day of your conception, the day of your birth. He has also planned the day of our death. He planned who you would marry. He planned what your characteristics and gifts would be. He planned the trials that you would face. He planned when a troubling thing would happen to you, when enemies might be allowed to attack you. This is all part of his comprehensive counsel. Now, it's true that God does guide us also with his moral will. I wondered whether in Psalm 119, you know, that song that in every single one of the sentences has a reference to the word of God. You know, using all these synonyms commandments, precepts, law. I wondered whether the word counsel was used there as a synonym. And I, I didn't find it being used there, but in verse 24, I did find 
the psalmist saying that God's testimonies are our counselors, that is, God's law gives us wise advice, the psalmist says. And so, yes, God does reveal to us through his word principles about how we are to live. But when the Bible here talks about God's counsel, it means something stronger. That's why there's one Psalter number that goes like this. It says, this is how the lyrics go. Thy counsel through my earthly way shall guide me and control. And notice the last word, control. That is a very strong word, isn't it? Notice he's saying, your counsel will not only guide me, but will control me. And that is, in fact, the idea here. God's counsel is his eternal plan that governs our lives, what he has decreed to come about in our lives. And in Psalm 33, for example, verse 11, the psalmist speaks about this. He said, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So notice how God has an eternal plan that governs our lives, and it is unchanging. It's not like God decides at one point, well, I made a mistake, and I need to have something else as part of my good plan for the life of this, my saint. A plan is something you put together. Right now, we have a committee at church that's looking into plans about how to renovate the front of the auditorium. That's a plan. And then what will happen? If it gets approved by the congregation in the future, then the plan will be carried out. Well, what God is doing in your life is he's carrying out this eternal plan right now. And he guides you and governs you through it. Now, we sometimes can guide someone without governing them. For example, one time when my wife was a, working at Calvin College back in the day, she was taking care of one of the dorms, and all of a sudden there was this convention for blind people. They couldn't see. And they came to the front desk, and they said, well, how are we going to get to the place where we need to go on campus? And she, so she gave them directions. She said, you know, when you come to this corner and this street and this sidewalk, this is where you need to go. But she looked out the window shortly, and she saw they were going all the wrong direction. So she had to go and catch them and guide them and bring them to the correct auditorium. But she wasn't governing them. They just said where they needed to go, and she guided them. But see, our God is not like that. He not only guides us, but he governs us. It's more like if you're guiding a horse. What do you do with your horse? If you want to guide your horse, and you want your horse, for example, to or the race, or to try to round up some cattle, what you need to do is you need to control your horse. You need to use the reins so that you guide him and control the horse so the horse does what you wish. So God guides us by governing us in his wisdom, in his fatherly wisdom. Now this great counsel of God has decree of providence is so comprehensible. You know, we say it's so comprehensive. We talk about the decree of election just being a part of that. Yes, God's great decree of providence, of course, is, is as it were, in an orbit around. It circles around his great plans and election and reprobation. But this is comprehensive, and it includes at the heart of this great plan is the plan to crucify Jesus for us. That's why on Pentecost Sunday, the Apostle Peter preached, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's why after the apostle Peter and John were arrested and then freed, the early Christians said, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, that was part of God's counsel, the the most evil sin, the most terrible thing in human history, the murder of the Son of God was part of God's eternal plan. Now, God's counsel, therefore, includes all the ways in which he is guiding you and leading you to the heavenly city. Remember, when you're going through hard times, when you're climbing steep hills, when you're going through sharp curves, remember the passage that some of our catechism students memorized for this morning. The Apostle Paul says there's something we know. We know that all things work for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So God is guiding us. He's leading us. He's carrying out his will. And he does it as a father. Look at verse 23, the verse right before our text. He says, nevertheless, the psalmist says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Isn't that something? He says, God, you hold my right hand. Your right hand, of course, is the one that is making, is used to do a lot of important things in your life if you're right-handed. And so it kind of, it's something that plays an important role in directing your life. And the psalmist says, God, you hold me by my right hand. You're leading me in all the work that I'm doing. And here you got to think of the imagery. What do you do when you have little kids? You have little kids and you come to that road. What do you do? You grab that child by his hand. And you safely walk him across the street. That is the picture here. God is guiding you, holding you by your hand, safely helping you to walk on the way that leads to life. So when you're going through trials, if you're going through trials this week, remember that. Yes, your father's hand is on your right hand this week. Now, why is it necessary for you and me to be guided by God's counsel? Well, the problem is, first of all, that we often trust in our own wisdom. We have our own plans. We have our own ideas. Sometimes sinful plans. Sinful ideas. What Asab did is basically he pulled his hand back out of the hand of God, as it were. And he begins to have some tunnel vision about what's going on in his life and in the life of people around him. And the psalmist is surprising how negatively he talks about himself. You know, if I was giving, you know, Christian counsel to someone, they come to me and they say, you know, I did something wrong and I just want to talk about it. And they started talking about themselves like the psalmist talks about himself. I would say, well, don't talk about yourself like that. Because this is how he talks about himself in verse 22. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow. 
kind of surprised how Asaph isn't afraid to air a little bit of his dirty laundry. We often, you know, when we make a mistake or when we sin against God, we really don't want other people to know. And here, Asaph has been really living in unbelief and kind of being a practical atheist, and then he writes a song about it. But I'm glad he did. It's good to hear the struggles of other Christians and how God has opened their eyes. He says, I was like an animal. I was foolish. I was brutish and ignorant like a dumb animal. And what he did is he began to be bitter and envy. And that's why we need it too. We need to, we need God's guidance and we need his wisdom or we will act like this too. He talks about a sin he had been committing. You know, isn't it rough if you're struggling to pay your bills and you wonder, well, how am I going to pay all my bills? And then you read on the news about the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and he's got this kabillion-dollar yacht. And he has mansions all over the place. How do you feel? Or you simply have all these trials in your life. Here you're trying to fear the Lord and walk in his commandments, and you have this problem, you're dealing with this conflict, you're sick, you have all these troubles in your life, getting depressed, you're lonely, and then you see wicked people, and you seem like, man, all their kids are visiting them all the time, or they seem to have lots of money to buy everything they want, and you get bitter. This past week, I was just reading a book about Elon Musk. And I think read a book like that does cure you of the idea that the wicked people are happy. The new biography of Elon Musk shows, too, that he's had all kinds of problems in his life, growing up in South Africa, struggling with challenges in his life, being beaten up, having a dad who's abusive and mean, mom having divorced, dad, crazy situations. But when we look at the rich, often we think, and the wicked people, we think, well, they have, they have it great. They don't have to pay any Christian school tuition. They have all kinds of money to buy all kinds of nice bass boats. And that's a context where the psalmist says, for all the day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says here, the wicked seem to be doing great, and God is chastising me, and things are hard for me. Now, the reason why we need God's guidance is that if we were left to ourselves, we would slip and fall, like Asaph almost did in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He was in a dangerous situation spiritually. He was kind of like Peter, remember, who steps out, steps out of the boat, and he's walking on water, takes his eyes off Jesus, sees the storms of life. It's like the psalmist, too. He took his eyes off God, the omnipotent God, and is looking at the wicked and how they seem to prosper. Things are great for them. And he almost slips, he says. One reason it's necessary for us to be guided by God's counsel because the wicked who are not guided by God's counsel come under the severe judgment of God. That's what helped the psalmist. 
you look at verse 17, you see the resolution to all of this. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That is, what would happen to them. And then notice what their end is. He brings it up in at least three different verses. In verse 18, he brings it up. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So what God does is sometimes when you have wicked men and they have their idols, whether it's the idol of trying to get mankind to Mars, and God gives you some success, so SpaceX takes off. Well, what happens is then wicked people get confirmed in their idols. God gives wicked men wealth as they're workaholics and as they live for their jobs, so then they, they make even more of an idol out of their work. God sets them in slippery places, and then they fall into ruin. And then in verse 19, there's another end mentioned. He says how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So for a while, it seems like things are going well for the wicked, and then comes their personal judgment day, and God ends their life, and they appear before the judgment seat of Christ for their personal judgment, and it doesn't go well. And the look ahead to verse 27. There, once again, we have a third reference to their end. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. They will perish everlastingly in the lake of fire. We need God to guide us, finally, because only God can guide us through the dangers of life. God can guide us. Vain philosophies cannot guide us. Humanism cannot guide us. Only God can, because guess what? He knows the way. He also is able to protect his pilgrims, and he loves us with a powerful love so that he will bring us safely to his chosen destination. And that brings us to the last words of our text. The psalmist sings, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. The word and there that starts the second part of this verse could be translated with the word then instead. And then the simply the idea is this. It's, it chronologically follows. While I'm alive, God will be guiding me according to his all-wise and loving fatherly plan, and then when he calls me home, he afterwards then will receive me into glory. God's goal in guiding us through our, our entire life is to bring us to our heavenly home. The psalmist says in Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And what is God doing? He is leading us to a rock, a rock in the Old Testament that was a type of Jesus. That rock in the wilderness from which came water for the Israelites, that rock which the writer of the New Testament says followed after Israel is a type of Jesus Christ. God the Father leads us to Christ in this life so that we see him, so that we believe that he is the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, so that we believe that he is the Savior and my Savior. We believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that his cross involved Christ 
suffering the punishment we deserve for all of our sins. The psalmist's song here reaches really heights of celebration when he says, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Afterwards, yet Christ has earned for us happiness and joy in the perfect land of love. Christ has earned for us an everlasting salvation. He has merited for us a house of many mansions where some of our loved ones are already now in their souls. And notice what the psalmist says, you will receive me to glory. What happens at a reception? Well, when you have a reception, you have a president, for example, and what he does at the reception is he receives people. He greets people and welcomes them into the White House. Here is the picture of the King of Kings, the God of the universe, our Father, Elohim, Adonai. And what will he do when he brings your journey to an end? He will welcome you into paradise. Just like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And then later on that day, the soldiers broke that thief's legs and he died. And Christ was already there in his soul and could welcome him into paradise. God will open the gates and will welcome you, his pilgrim child. He will clothe you with new garments, give you a crown of glory. You'll be able to lay down your pilgrim staff and you'll be given a palm branch instead of a picture of triumph and celebration. God will receive you to glory. What does that word glory refer to? Well, it actually can have two possible meanings. One meaning is that it refers to heaven as a place where the glory of God shines forth. Like in the new world, we're told, there will be no need for the sun, moon, and stars because, stars because the glory of God and the light of the Lamb will illuminate paradise. So then the glory here is the, it's the shining forth of the light of the glory of all the marvelous attributes of the God who is the invisible God. Now that is a profound mystery, isn't it? No one has seen God. No creature has ever seen God in his divine essence, and yet there is somehow a manifestation, a display of his splendor and his love and his power. That's why we refer to heaven sometimes as glory, because it's a place where God's glory fills paradise. But others like Martin Luther thought this meant, in fact, instead that it should be translated like this, which is an accusative of manner. Luther translated it, and afterward you will receive me with honor. So the way in which God receives us is with honor. And that is a beautiful con con concept in itself. Today, Christians on earth can be despised. Maybe you feel like, no one gives me any respect. Guess what? God will receive you into glory with great honor, public esteem, great respect. You'll be publicly honored before all the saints that are in heaven, the church triumphant, and before the angels and the cherubim. That would be the point then. God will give you a crown of glory. 
Now you can see that Asaph has certainly come around because now he, with the highest spiritual poetry, sings at the end of the song in, in verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's not caught up with money anymore. He doesn't make an idol of his health anymore. He's not envious of what the proud wicked have who can wear their pride like a necklace. He's not, no, there's one thing he desires. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Notice that he says, there's only one thing above all that I desire in heaven, and that is the one true and glorious God. The point is this. If the Father was not displayed in heaven, and if Jesus Christ was not displayed and present in heaven, the Holy Spirit was not there, it wouldn't be heaven. Asaph would rather not be there. Even if it was a land of love and a land of perfection, a land of joy, he wants to be with God. Heaven without God is no heaven. Oh, how he delights in God. Do you like delight in God like that too? Do you say with the psalmist too, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God himself, and delighting in him and glorifying him. That is the great goal of our life. That's why John Piper says, mission exists only in the service of worship. Why do we bring the gospel to the nation? So that people would delight in Jesus and worship him. And for us too. That's why heaven will be so glorious, because God will be here. The Holy Trinity will be present. And we will be able to enjoy the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one true and glorious God, forever and ever and in forever in a new world. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so foolish. In ourselves, we are so brutish and beast-like. So we do covet the wicked, and we do get caught up with the things of this world. And so in this coming week, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cure us of that. And in this house of prayer, may we have learned that you are the one who is to be delighted in and celebrated and worshipped above all else. And help us to glorify you by doing that in concrete ways this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.